many people think that unity is that me and you become one and do everything the same and we do it all together. Wrong. That's not unity. Unity is that at least we unite our vision. Then how do we do it? What ways do we use? That could be different. Hi friends, and welcome to another episode of the Assyrian Podcast. On this episode, we get to interview Savina Dawood. Savina is an Assyrian activist who studies her master's in human rights and co-founded the educational institute called Ituti. Ituti helps Assyrian children in the homeland gain real leadership skills and develop. Check out their website at www.etuti.org. Follow Savina, find her on social media, and get to know more about what she's doing. Savina is fierce, and I believe she is speaking for an entire generation of young Assyrians who want to make a difference. So enjoy the episode, but first, thank you everyone who's been emailing and messaging about people who could be on the Assyrian podcast. Thank you to everybody who's rated us on iTunes. Please rate and review because it really does help. And if you know someone who should be on the Assyrian podcast, send me an email at assyrianpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from so many more of you. And now, enjoy getting to know Savina Dawood. Get a high five. <laughs> All right. I'm going to tell you what I've heard about you and what I've researched, and then you can fill in some blanks. Okay. So, born and raised in Iraq? Correct. There's a picture of you. You've got, like, your Assyrian... Guard or your military yeah. outfit on, and that's a really popular picture. Just yes, if when yeah. people are searching for you, so tell us what's that. So that photo is from uh, Assyrian New Year's. We make a parade every year uh, in Nohadra, and that's organized by Assyrian Democratic Movement uh, Zawa. It's a political party, and usually we just dress in our Humala clothes or the military clothes. So the military clothes, because like we want to support the idea that we are here, we are continuing, we're going to be fighting for Got our it. rights. Yes. So that's where the picture comes from. I am not in the military. I have uh-huh. never been. <laughs> but if it's needed, I will be But you day. would. Right? Yeah. yeah. So what was it like growing up in Iraq? Where did you go to school? How did you get to the point now where you're known as this Assyrian activist leader and you're really trying to make some significant improvements and changes to our ethnicity? I was uh, born in Shaklawa. It's a town close to Erbil, like one hour away. Uh, I'm not originally from there, but my father was running a school there. Our family comes from Hakkari. And in 1915, when the genocide, when the Assyrian-Armenian genocide was happening, that's when they moved to northern Iraq. I have never been there, but I would love to. Um, and then from uh, Shaklawa in 1991 or two, that was... Um, the war between the central government and uh, the Kurds in the north. So we had to flee to Iran. And we were, I lived in the refugee camps for like seven months, maybe, uh, with my family there in Urmia. It's also an Assyrian town. And then we returned. Urmia in Iran. Yeah. Yes. We were refugees there for like seven months or something. Yeah. The government put some tents for us and stuff. And then we returned back to Erbil. Many families, they left Iran and they went to diaspora, but my family decided to go back again to Erbil. 
over to northern Iraq. And that's what we did, and that's where I grew up mainly in Erbil. And I went to school to Erbailo school. It's an Assyrian school, so I studied everything in Assyrian, like mathematics, chemistry, anything that you can think of. I studied it in Assyrian in primary school and in high school. And then... Wait, wait. What you're telling me is there was a private school... It's actually public school. It's by the government. Uh, however, the efforts of making that school, it came from a Syrian aid society and a Syrian democratic movement in the early 90s or mid-90s. That's when they established the school for us in Erbil and in Nohadra. And nowadays you will see these schools all over northern Iraq. So you have to understand here in the States, when we turn on the news, we hear about which kind of soda Donald Trump is drinking. <laughs> you know, that's the extent of what we hear. And we don't really get a clear picture. So when we hear of Iraq, we think of Saddam Hussein, evil regime. Mm -hmm. What you're explaining to me, though, is that there was a publicly funded private school or public school. Not by him, though, uh, because okay. the north was not directed by Saddam at that time. It was directed by Kurdistan regional government. So that's when they, uh, these political parties, or this political party specifically, they struggled a very long time until they got it approved for us to have school uh, teaching in our own language, but they did it, and they started translating books, all the educational curriculum, and now we now have it them. was the Syrians who were pushing Correct. hard with the Kurdistan government to say, we want our kids to learn and speak. And Correct, yeah. So your dad was the principal of this school? No, my dad was the principal of another school Got in it. a different but city. They sent this you is when over. I was a one, two years old. Okay. Uh, this school was established when I was five, six. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's a different time. Because when we returned from Iran, we didn't go back to where my father was teaching. We went to Erbil, which is, you know one, two hours away from it. And this specific school is in Ankawa, which is a town known for being, in majority, Christians live there, Assyrians live there. Yeah, but my mother, she was one of the main, uh, one of the first teachers in the school, and she teaches uh, science. Until today, she's actually in that school. She's still there now. Yeah, she's a teacher until then. But my father also in... Um, I'm not sure which year was it, I think 2005 or six. He also started teaching uh, physics and math in that school. When we uh, finished primary school and we started high school, then we needed teachers to teach us physics and math in Assyrian. Mm -hmm. And we could not find very easily teachers who can speak and um, teach an Assyrian language. But my father, because of the church, he knew how to read and write Assyrian. So it was still a challenge for him. Um, to teach these terminologies because he was a physics teacher as well and math teacher. So, but he learned these terminologies at home together with me and he was teaching us physics and math. And then after a couple of years, he became the uh, supervisor of the Assyrian language and the Christian religion in all of these schools. Like, so your dad, yeah. he's pretty much a boss. <laughs> he pretty much goes into a community and uh, he invests himself. He he's to got schools. He's in charge of the schools yes. that teach Assyrian mm -hmm. and that teach Christian religion. And he just needs to make sure that the teacher is going according to the plan. If um, everything is going well with the educational system. When I hear the word Kurds and Assyrians, it's always negative. I'm always when I read it in different 
places on Facebook, postings, whatever it might be. But what you're talking about is a place where somehow Kurds worked with Assyrians to establish a school. Okay, so I think it would not be correct to take that school example and put it on their side. Uh, because this was a struggle and this was a fight of our own people over and over and again until we were able to take it. So this wasn't like, um, um, you know, like something on a plate given to us. No, this was something we fought for. You fought for, for. okay. Exactly. And that's one thing. And on, on the other thing, I would uh, really try to explain to our people that it would not be correct to say Kurds because it's not all Kurds, first of all, and it's, ma it's not in all fields. For example, on social level, it's okay. You will see mm -hmm. Kurd Assyrians and, and Kurds, Kurds hanging, hanging out, out together, yeah. especially in universities, you know, because they're the majority, we are the minority there, so we do mix together. But when it comes to politics, that's where all the oppression, where the dirty games start. And also, it depends on geographically. Mm -hmm. For example, there are those regions like in Nala where, or in Berwa where there's oppression or there's land grabbing. So it depends on where you are. Land grabbing, exactly. what do you mean by that? For example, like one... A rich family, like Agha rich family, that is belonging to a Kurdish family, and they would just build something over an Assyrian land, and the government would not really do much about it. And this has been going on for many years and years. Like, all these villages up north, they used to be all Assyrian mm -hmm. villages, uh, by rights and by inherit. And then suddenly now when you go and see that uh, majority of them Kurds are uh, living in there. So, so over yeah. the period of years, how did how did the Assyrian people just give up the land? Were they forced out? Of course, most of the time they were forced out. Nobody would leave their lands for nothing. I have never heard ever in my whole entire life that somebody just left because you know they don't want it here anymore. Mainly, it was because they were forced out of there. And how forced? Force is not always by somebody coming and putting a gun on your head. That's not always force. Force is not allowing you to freely speak your mind, not allowing you to freely exercise what you're doing, exercise your traditions, uh, not to be able to make businesses and to be able to right. benefit from your... So th th it could be many things. Your life conditions become horrible and you decide you have to leave. Exactly. And then when you see that that you are being oppressed politically. For example, Assyrians will look up to their representative in the parliament, right? Mm -hmm. Those should be the people who have the most power in the parliament, our representatives. And then when you see how they are being oppressed by, for example, other Kurdish political parties, then the people will also feel uh, oppressed by them. And that also makes us feel that we are vulnerable, we cannot do a change because if our powerful people are being oppressed, then what about the poor families or the families that are living in the villages? Sh trickle down effect. Yeah. So we often hear like, oh, Assyrians were were so divided, and there's all these different political groups, and there's all these different churches. I would say from the beginning of the like me growing up, for example, because I grew up in a Syrian school in Arba'illa school and in Ur. And I was close to um, Kaldosirian uh, organization. It's um, Kaldosirian Students and Youth Union, Hoyada. Kaldo Syrian. Uh, Kaldo Assyrian Students and Youth Union, also known as Hoyada. 
Got it. It's a youth organization. And that must be a combo of Chaldean, people who identify as Chaldean and people who identify as Assyrian. Yeah. Yeah. So you grew up within that institution, or, or yeah, you, like this is what like the environment. I'm telling you, like sure. my school was Assyrian. I was involved in this in this youth organization. My family is Assyrian, and at that time, everything that I remember from my childhood, for example, was done by the Assyrian Democratic Movement. It was the most active, and still is the most active Assyrian party. And so I would say, in my opinion. Um, I could be wrong also, but this is my opinion from what I see from my experience. It could be the most independent one. I'm not saying everything they do is correct in my views. Some things I completely disagree with uh, in their policies. Some, thing, some, some things I support, I agree with. It's different in politics to give a straight opinion because maybe I say it's way more convoluted. It's very complicated. Yeah. If today I say, okay, I support uh, this political party, everybody else should support this political party. This is a wrong statement. Mm -hmm. You nobody should ever do that. Why? Because tomorrow they might change something. They might do something that you never thought they would do. You know. So I think it's better for us as Assyrians to always be in a way receiving everyone, to be open, to look at to look at things, to research about the truth, to understand what's going on, not to always uh, wait for someone to support. I understand that you have to look up to people who are from Iraq to see, but that's it's not that case anymore. Now you have ways to, to contact Iraq. You have ways to see what's going on there. Everything is online. It's very easy to research about every single political party and to see when did they start. For example, Assyrian Democratic Movement, the founders, the main founders of the Assyrian Movement, where are they? They are they're martyrs now. Why were they martyred? Because they were for an Assyrian cause and Saddam had executed them. And then their vision from then, where is it today? How is it being led today? So there are wrongs and rights about all of our political parties. You should always keep your eyes open, keep your ears open, and keep researching what's going on, what's your view on this, and keep asking questions and trying to understand what's going on. Because our political parties, whether we like it or not, they, are, they have been growing up in an environment that has been dictated. So I still see uh, some ways or some understandings that are not modern within our political parties, that they need to change, that they need to be more democratic, they need to be more open, they need to be more flexible. And I think they also need a push from the youth generation, from the young generation yeah. to change. And to be honest, I do see them getting better. I do Good. see them uh, changing. For example... You will see the platform before it was only available to read in Arabic or everything. And now you can see them translating everything into English as well. Because now they understand the influence of the international community and that they need to understand our point of view or the Assyrian Democratic point of view of the political environment in Iraq. So I see them changing, our political parties in general. Well, I think that's a lot to say. And I think that's really helpful because the narrative... I was given is there's a good guy and there's a bad guy and yet moving forward if if the Assyrian people are going to diversify from within and they're going to find an identity beyond different parties we, it begins with acknowledging that these different parties had very legitimate reasons for heading in different directions at one point or another that's I think the hard thing of being an institution these days is you might find out 
the, the purpose for which you were created has been fulfilled. And you've got to start either going back and reconnecting with, with the people you're originally connecting with or you know, determining a new direction. And so your attitude of we've got to have an open mind. We've got to continue to watch the issues. Don't just today someone says they're heading in a certain direction, but people change. They're malleable. And the issues that we're dealing with is not like they're static so talk, let's hear about that for a second, because the fall of Saddam happened in 2003. What's been the result of that for the Assyrian people in Iraq? I know that's a big question. So. <clears throat> yeah, it was a changing moment for us, but unfortunately it was for worse, not for better. How? The United States of America, their foreign policies, the way they managed it, the way that they put up together this new uh, um, trans, uh, this new transitional government for mm-hmm. Iraq, it did not even include minorities. It did not even include indigenous people. Um, it had nothing to do with us. They did not even put us in the political equation that they built for Iraq, which is, in my opinion, one of the reasons of why today. Uh, Assyrians and Yazidis are facing genocide and ethnic cleansing in these regions because they focused to, on dividing the government and Iraq to Sunnis, Shias, and Kurds. And this is who they gave the government to. This is who they handed power was to. Was this based on numbers, how many people they have in those regions? It was based on numbers. It was based on power. It was based on oil. Got it. Yes. So where are we at now? Well, I cannot explain in in very short time. This is a very broad topic of where we are at now. But from... We picked it up. I mean, as Assyrians, one of the characteristics... The uh, the Assyrian democratic movement has been a huge voice to... Exactly. Mm -hmm. Uh, In my opinion, if it wasn't for Assyrian democratic movement, Assyrians in Iraq would have long be gone and vanished within other cultures Mm -hmm. and other communities there. So I think we are still on the right track somehow. That's how we are keeping it on. But I think we should uh, improve it better. We should empower our own youth onto understanding and educating ourselves on how we can fix this. So not too long ago, I was watching a documentary on Amazon called Silence After the Storm. And you have a line in that where you say, you know, you're for unity and not division. You see, unity, many people think that unity is that me and you become one and do everything the same and we do it all together. Wrong. That's not unity. Unity is that at least we unite our vision. Then how do we do it? What ways do we use? That could be different. Different political parties they can sit down together, they can have a unified vision. Where do we see ourselves? Like now, some political parties, they want to be within the regional government of Kurdistan. Some political parties, they want to stay within a united Iraq. Some of them, they want uh, self-governance for Assyrians. Right. They need to unify this vision. They need to, uh, to sit down together. Or determine that they're going to hit all three on the fronts all together and help each other with that cannot happen. That's what I'm saying. This is where it's wrong. This is you where should, the breakdown happens. Exactly. Like now, for example, the Kurds, they have a unified vision. Right. They want a Kurdistan as mm-hmm. an independent country. It doesn't matter how they do it. Like you see that their ways are different of how doing it. And it showed in the latest referendum how the PUK and the PDK, 
they somehow disagreed on how to do it in Kirkuk and they did different ways, different means, but they have one unified vision. And this is this should be the same that we should imply it, that we should sit down together, figure out one vision for our people, and then we can have different ways of doing it. It doesn't it doesn't have to be the same exact way that we work for it. And unity for us, for the people, it's it's not that we both say we are Assyrians or we both say we are Surai or it's not that. That's not also that's not unity. Unity is when I am sitting down with a girl from Nineveh, I am able to understand her accent, she's able or dialect, she's able to understand my dialect. I have been to Nineveh. I have seen how um, her village is or how her city is, how her, her town, and she's able to understand mine. We, we, uh, we change our ideas or exchange our ideas. I understand her, her traditional clothes. She, she wears mine. She feels part of mine. This is unity, that we feel we are one people. We're able to understand each other. We are respecting each other's characteristics and traditions and everything that we and have in common. And even language. Exactly. Language is one language. We just have different dialects. We have one language, we have Eastern, we have Western, and then different of uh, tens of other dialects. I think the f last, um, la in 2016, at the Syrian convention, this unity or the understanding of unity in this context was clarified to me by Dr. Nicholas Algido mm -hmm. when he said it, that unity is when I speak Marboyo, Western, when someone from Western dialect speaks Eastern, Madunkhoyo. This is unity, that me and you feel that we are the same people, but we speak different dialects. Right. We, our traditional clothes are different. You come from Urmi, I come from Hakkari, but we are the same people. This is unity. And when it comes to names and those things, I think with education, with going on forward to working for our people, for our cause, I think we will be able. I see it as positive. The only thing is to be able to understand what we call it ourselves. We can call ourselves whatever we want at this point. But I think with education, with getting closer to our country, to our ancestral land, to getting our rights as indigenous people, mm -hmm. not as a minority group. Yeah, and I want to hear more about that because you made a yeah. strong distinction between being referred to as a minority group and an indigenous group. Exactly. It's well, completely different. Because there's better rights for indigenous people that fit more along the lines for of us. Assyrian yes people want to accomplish exactly. so tell us the difference between indigenous and minority <laughs> and tell us also what you see as what it what it is the aim of the assyrian in the world today and, well, and also when you're done with that question in two hours i have a follow-up question yeah. <laughs> no worry so yeah. for minorities and indigenous groups a minority group is any member that belongs to an ethnical minority a national minority a religious minority or linguistic minority and it is true that as assyrians as a fact we are a minority group in iraq in syria too in turkey and in iran as well yes yeah but at the same time we are also the indigenous peoples of iraq and part of other countries as well 
what's, so what's the, the delineator that exactly. you're using to determine us as indigenous people? So there are some uh, characteristics that are given in international uh, documents of somehow defining who indigenous are and how what are their um, characteristics. So, for example, one of them is that they should be the original inhabitants of the country when it was colonized, and this implies on us. And there is another one where that that group should have uh, suffered uh, from oppression and omissions during colonization, oppression and omission on their lands, on yep. their identity and their culture, and we have suffered. So so that far, well. Assyrians can check box both of those. Exactly, like we can, and and also we have to self-identify ourselves mm-hmm. as indigenous peoples. And this point is a little bit critical for us, not because we think we are not indigenous, only because. We have not been able to educate ourselves enough about the issue of indigenous people, but I think we will be able to get there as well. But many of us, when we understand what indigenous peoples mean as a terminology, we immediately adopt it because we feel it. Right. I mean, ever since I was growing up, I've been told I'm an Assyrian, and Assyrians come from the Assyrian Triangle. And, of course, if you study ancient history, it goes back to Assyrians and So there's no doubt that Assyrians are the indigenous people of that region. Do we have any issues with people saying, you're not really the ancient Assyrians. You're a new identity that pretends to be. Have you heard of this? Line? I have heard, but I don't even But it's even not even in a question for, for me, you. For me, I have never, ever put it within my time. I don't want to waste time on that. I don't have time to waste on people saying that they, there are enough books There are enough museums uh, for them to prove to prove them wrong. I don't have time for that. When somebody chooses to be uneducated, chooses to take that road, I do not have to waste my time on that. Mm-hmm. They are deciding to waste their time on that. I should not. And when you come and look who actually says that, they're just people saying that online. I've never met somebody personally saying that to me. Nobody would dare to say that personally to you because they know it's not it's true. A, it's an they insult. Know. Well, and, exactly. Yeah. They just want to insult you online. On Facebook, you see it, on comments. Yeah. by some. Most of the cases, it's some uh, fake account. And if it's not, it's just somebody not educated enough to even go on further with you. They tell probably you, has never been or visited. Uh, exactly. They, they don't even have to go to Iraq to understand that. Just They can just understand it online. They can just okay. search for the information. Last night, someone asked you a question. They said... How should we identify or what? how big of a problem is it for the way that we should identify? And you, you responded with this really strong answer and you said, at some point we're not going to have anything to identify with because we're arguing about what, how to identify exactly. ourselves. So tell, tell me more about that. So if we keep fighting over what to identify ourselves, then we are just fighting each other. And then we're not going to have anything left. So what does it matter, what am I called, if I lose my land, if I don't have, um, if I lose my language, if I lose everything that I have? Does it really matter at that point? What is it that we want? Go back to that for a second. What is it that we want? Like if, I don't if, know if what we could we open want. up a Christmas gift this Christmas <clears throat> and out of that box is what the Assyrian nation needs... That's the point. What I don't know what we have? want. We don't have a unified vision of what we want. Each one of us wants something different. This is what I am trying 
and I'm hoping that others will also start trying, is to unify our vision. I want to understand also my people. That's why I've been traveling and I've been trying to meet my community everywhere to try to understand their point of view and I want to deliver my voice of what I want. I know what I want. Um, I want, for example, a self-government for us. And self-governance doesn't mean to have our own country immediately because that's not possible at this point, but to be able to administrate ourselves, to be able to secure ourselves. This is something doable, very doable Kind of like how we possible. have Indian reservations here in the States. Where yeah, they have like we have the, the Samis in North Sweden and Norway. They, they have been self-governing themselves. Uh, since the 50s, and they are at the same time in contact, in collaboration, and almost also under the administration of the Swedish government at the same time. So there are some decisions that they make on their own, most of the decision, decisions actually. So you're and saying baby steps. Yeah. So this is the beginning to us. This is what I would want, because for us, we need a nation, uh, an international, national and international recognition of being indigenous people there. Because now you see in the educational curriculum in our history books that we are studying in northern Iraq, there's nothing anymore taught about Assyrians and who they are. So imagine that if my children are born in Iraq and if they are going to public schools... Um, They'll never know about they their will, own. They, They'll unless identify I tell as them, Iraqi. Exactly. Unless I tell them. Not even as Iraqi. Now in northern Iraq, it's mainly focused on Kurdistan. They only tell us about the struggle of the Kurds during Anfal and during... Don't get me wrong. We should study that too. I don't mind studying about any struggle of any people, but my people too. So imagine that my children will not be able to learn about Assyrians. Not just my children. The children of my Kurdish neighbor... They will not know who I am. They will think that I am a Kurd or I am a, an Arab. They will not understand what is my, who am I. And what happens identity. if they don't? What happens if they never What's hear What's happening it? today? It's going to be oppression. They will call me a Christian Kurd. They will call me a Christian Arab, which is what's happening so today. So what does humanity lose when the Assyrian identity is diminished? Conflict rises. When there is an oppression of a group that feels that their identity is being, uh, their rights are being violated as people, then conflict will rise. This is only nature of life. When I feel oppressed, then I will be aggressive towards you. You will be more aggressive towards me. And obviously, since you are the dominating one, you will violate m my rights and you will violate my freedom. And then I will have to, you know, either leave the country or exactly the results of today. So I think the elephant in the room on this is you're someone who is approaching these matters from an educated perspective. Indigenous versus minority, for example, is a very important delineation to focus in on. Also, being able to acknowledge what it is that we actually need and coming up with a shared common vision and recognizing that within our political parties there's going to be divergence and that's okay. But then there's this other piece and it, it deeply affects the Assyrian nation. And I know people will want to hear more educated, understanding perspective, and it's the church. For thousands of years, Assyrians have identified as Christians. Many of Assyrians get their direction from church, from uh, spiritual people. So what do the churches need to do? Do you even speak to that from your perspective of where you're at and what you're trying to do there? So I was raised... As Christian, Assyrian, I was raised in church, um, I was in the choir, 
for as long as I can remember. Um, I love being in church. I love the atmosphere there, the tradition and everything. Within specifically our church, we always also, even in our prayers, you can hear the Assyrian as a nation. And uh, from our um, from our church leader, you can always hear that they're telling us you should build Assyrian families, you should name them Assyrian names so they don't lose their their identity. So, from my church, from my own church, I have always learned to love my Christ and my Assyrian nation, both of them. And. In my opinion, or my advice would be for people who their priority is towards the church or towards their belief, they can use that belief and that faith into their work and their dreams as Assyrians. So, because as a Christian, anything is possible, right? Christ tells you, if you believe in me, anything is possible. So please, for my brothers and sisters who believe in Christ and it's Christ is their priority, so use that faith, be strong in faith, and then use it for your dreams, for your missions and goals towards our nation. For me, I would rather have, like, I don't really like to interfere within, uh, within churches because that's not my field, you see? Like, I can, I can talk about politics because I've studied through politics, uh, I'm experienced in that. I don't want to talk about church because I'm not... A religious person. By religious, I mean I don't have any qualifications mm-hmm. as a, as somebody in a church. Uh, my role is only as a believer, uh, as a follower of a church. I'm not a leader in a church. I'm not nothing in a church. I'm just a humble follower. I go to the church, but I would seriously ask our church leaders to mainly focus on the spiritual side of our people because that's where let the church be the church exactly so they can talk about faith they can talk about Christ they should talk about how we can be together united as um, in Jesus in Christ but when it comes to politics I don't think it's necessary for them to interfere they can interfere in terms of when they should when they sit down with our political parties discuss with them take and give give their opinions but they should not go on a tv or anywhere go and discuss politics there are people who are studying politics who have been chosen by people you are not chosen by people our church leaders none of them is chosen by people they do their own elections. They have, I don't understand, like they have their council of, of priests or bishops. and They, they have their own it. process. Exactly. So you are not chosen by people. You are chosen by God and by your bishops to lead the church. We have political representatives that we chose and we will, we will take the consequences when we choose wrong and when we choose right. So this is what we need to make it clear for our people who listen to their political, who listen to their priests making political statements. They should make this analysis that this person, how much do they know about politics? Uh, how much do they know about history? How much do they know about what's going on now? If he thinks that he's good in politics, then why is he a church leader? Right? So that's where they should make the analysis and understand for themselves that politics is for politicians and church leaders are for spiritual food. Yeah. I go to church not to listen to politics. I go Mm. to church to pray, Mm. to be closer to God. I open the TV to listen to news from a politician to understand what our representative did for us in the the parliament. So let's get apples from the apple tree and... Mm. 
<laughs> Thank you for that response. So important to our time. So you you don't have any children you're give, you've given birth to, but you have many, many, many children through the yes. E2T Institute. It's E-T-U-T-I dot O-R-G. Mm-hmm. I went on the website just a couple days ago, and I was just stunned because mm-hmm. what I'm seeing is everything we've just talked about and everything you stand for, you actually have an application. You have a place where... This isn't talk. This is, here's Actions. some programs that we're building that are going to make a difference. Exactly. Leadership, you're huge on defining leadership in a, in a healthy way. Rather than simply stating leadership is who's in charge, leadership is character-based. Leadership is... Teamwork. Teamwork. Yeah, you yeah. did mention that. And then you talk about gender equality. You talk about instilling confidence. So take us to E2T and what the work you're doing there and where you see that going. So with E2T, when we first thought of it, it was 2013, me and my friend, Ninos, and we are the co-founders of this institute. We were thinking that we don't have any Assyrian leaders in our modern days, like Assyrian leaders that we look up to. Yeah, you told the story of how yeah. you, you guys tried to name Exactly, an we tried leader. to name Assyrian leaders that Assyrian nation appreciates and, and you know, looks up to. That are current. Exactly, that are current. It was maybe one name or maybe none. I don't even remember. It was mm-hmm. a long time ago. And then we were like, okay, then we should have this um, platform. Or so, this- so for the audience that's listening right now, they're in their car, they're driving to work, you can hit the pause button and ask yourself, who are some Assyrian leaders that you can, current Assyrian leaders that you can think of off the top of your head? Go ahead. Exactly. You got two minutes. Pause. All right, we're back. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> So it was the same for us. We really were not able to name any modern Assyrians. All we could think of was uh, Arapotros, was Ashurbanipal. Arapotros is an historical Mm -hmm. uh, figure who was leading the army um, during World War One. So, and then we were like, okay, we need modern Assyrian leaders, and then we need them within the homeland because this is where our lands are. So we were like, okay, we're going to figure out this, an institute that would create leaders or that would nourish leaders. Cultivate, yeah, yeah. nourish. Yeah. So there are some born leaders. There are some leaders that Instilling you can... Instilling confidence Exactly, and that them. you can yeah. uh, build them and uh, you can give them more opportunities. And then in 2014, ISIS invaded Nineveh. So we were like, okay, we will hold on to our idea. For now, we will help our brothers and sisters who are internally displaced in our cities. And that's what we did. And then in August... Um, we were sitting on the roof in one of the buildings that was hosting internally displaced people. And there was this little girl, Mina. She was like, I think, three at that time. And she was playing with her cousins this game called Dash, means ISIS. And she was telling them, I'll be at home and you will come and take me as a hostage. And my other um, cousin has to come and uh, save me. And then I was like, oh, my God. Our children, they're three, four years old, and they're playing an ISIS game. And then we thought of these people, what they really need, and especially the youth and the children who are internally displaced, they don't need food. They don't need um, 
water. They don't need shelter. This is not what they need. Mm -hmm. What they really need is their mental their mental status, what's going on in their mind and what's going on inside of them, in their heart, in their in, in their psychology, what's going on? How can we help them fight what they're fighting with and to be themselves, to be who they who they are? And that's when we were like, okay, let's establish this, let's start with this. And that's what we did. We started with educational and sports programs, and we went through the ID, uh, all the IDP camps there. And What's an IDP camp? It's internally displaced people's camp. So and, a camp and, where and internally And you're seeing displaced. thousands or hundreds of kids show up to these things because ISIS took over so for, um, in Syria. Within Etuti programs and especially the Christmas campaign that mm -hmm. we have been doing we have been doing since 2014 we have been through 15,000 children so 15,000 children within and among them four or five thousand were also Yazidis that we went to their camps and we gave them gifts and we spent who time are the with them. Yazidis that's a very... Actually, I wrote one of my papers okay, about that. Okay, so we'll so, look that one up yeah, online. Yeah, it's a 20 pages. I will send it to you because... You can't answer it like... No, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> so, so your organization instills, helps people to find their identity, helps people to... Helps kids mm -hmm. to um, think bigger about who they well, are. Well, our vision is generations of leaders. We want to have generations of leaders, yeah? Because... If you, like, throughout time, I hear that people say, oh, we need generations of students, we need generations of soldiers. Etuti wants generations of leaders. We have students, we have soldiers, but we want generations of leaders. And that's what we are looking for. We want to empower our children and our youth to be able to lead in different fields, in, society, in social fields, in religious, in economy, in uh, politics, in in education, in all different, in entertainment, art, everything. Yeah, and there's many different programs exactly. for all the there different... Exactly, there are nine different projects. Each one of you will give you a different field and sense of leadership. We have trainings and workshops where we train them on leadership, communication, and all of that. And then we have human rights where we train them on human rights and explain to them what human rights are and how do we fight for them and how do we record violations or how do we identify them. And then we have a sports program, we have fine arts program, we have friendship program where we take, the, the idea of friendship program was to take the IDP and turn displaced youth and children outside of the camp and hang out with them like in a cinema or in a picnic so or a party. So they get sense of community and friendship. So we can build friendship with them. We don't want them to feel that we are doing this because of, out of sympathy. No, it's because we are same people you're suffering and we are just helping you uh, to stand on your feet because you're a survivor you're not a victim i mean you understand my point we are victims too but you should have the sense of a survivor because you survived something uh, huge the, something tragic the thing i really admire about you and i've now you know the longer I've gotten to know you, I'm seeing is, is something we desperately need as Assyrians. Is so many Assyrians have in their mind a genocide. It's traumatic. It's it's in our collective history, collective memory. Mm -hmm. I don't hear that from you. 
I don't hear a poor me attitude. I don't hear a, we've been through too much. Yeah, we have been through so much. Mm -hmm. That's something that we can find in in history books that uh, we have it almost in every family. My family have been through so much uh, on its own. We we left uh, Hakkari 1915 because of a genocide. We went to northern Iraq. My family in 60s, they left again because uh, the Saddam regime was bombing the area. They went to northern Iraq. And then again, in 91 we had to leave and become refugees in Iran and then again we came back and then in 2000 they bombed our house I was in the house there was um, an Islamic Kurdish movement rising at that time in Erbil they bombed our house we were sleeping in the house because we were the only Assyrian Christian family in a Kurdish neighborhood we moved to another Ankawa, as I told you. It's a yeah. town that is mainly... So I have been through so much, but I use this as a strength point. I use this as a way to survive better because when you suffer, you know how to survive better. That means you're stronger. It doesn't mean you are weaker. Mm-hmm. Just the fact that you have survived something that horrible, that alone makes you a stronger person. And this is what you want the kids to understand. Exactly. Because we have seen how this has affected our parents. And we can see that our parents, older generation, they are more afraid, I would say. And they have came to these countries, Mm -hmm. uh, just wanted to leave homeland. They wanted Mm -hmm. to forget everything about it. And then you see now um, our generation... They are the ones creating all these youth organizations and uh, building a bridge towards homeland and wanting to connect. Why is that? Because we feel and we get it that we are stronger now. So I think the new generation or our generation is finally getting it. We should be stronger. We are survivals, not victims. Mm-hmm. We were victims, but we survived. This is there is a huge difference between a victim and a survivor. This is what we should sense it and we should take it for us as a as a framework on how to work better and how to, you know, work stronger. Mm-hmm. I don't like to even in Ituti when you look through our videos, we never uh, focus on all oh, our poor families they're doing this they're doing that no we look at it as a, a brighter image we want to celebrate Christmas in Nineveh let's celebrate it we don't say these they have been through so much they haven't had no it, it, this is I don't like to promote sadness this is what many charity organizations and many of these non-profit organizations do they show you a picture of a child ripped their clothes ripped and they ask you for money that's not what I want to do I want people to feel strong and to feel obliged to help their own people not out of sympathy but out of feeling that we are one that I have the obligation to help my brother I have the obligation to support my brothers and sisters First, you know, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for uh, having me. You've got a vision. You've got a challenge for who we are. And not many people are able to articulate. And my parents moved here from Iran. My dad, and they've established themselves. They own property. But the younger generation, we were never given. Now, this is what you need to do. And when I hear you speak, I hear that. So thank you for being here on this show. And I want us to do it again. Yes, is that, is that a deal? Is yeah, that a deal? Definitely. All right, thank you so much. Thank you.